Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us. I am your host, Gareth Smythe. This will be a two-part episode with our guest, Dave Diaz, to talk about how the National Security Council and other interagency bodies within the U.S. government deal with pressing international security issues. Dave has served in the national security and foreign policy arena for more than 30 years. He currently serves as the director of the Interagency Task Force on Man Portable Air Defense Systems at the U.S. Department of State, where he leads a team of officials from state, defense, and homeland security, as well as the intelligence community, to combat illegal trafficking of advanced and portable guided missiles that could pose a threat to commercial and military aviation were they to fall into the wrong hands. Dave recently completed a stint as the director for African Affairs at the National Security Council, where he coordinated U.S. government efforts across the Sahel region and coastal West Africa to counter violent extremism and address global strategic competition in the region. Dave has also worked for the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and spent more than a decade as a Foreign Affairs Officer at the U.S. Department of State and Department of Defense. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps officer and a SALT helicopter pilot and holds master's degrees in international relations from Boston University and a national security strategy from the National War College in Washington, D.C. He is currently completing a master's at Georgetown focused on the socio-cultural and economic drivers of instability in the Sahel region of Africa. I know that you'll enjoy this illuminating discussion as much as I did. What I really appreciated about Dave's story and, and the experience that you'll hear is that he really kind of shines a light on what the interagency process looks like in practice. A lot of listeners to this podcast are currently national security students and don't have experience in how interagency entities like the National Security Council or some of the task force that bring together State Department, uh, Department of Homeland Security, or Department of Defense, right? how those entities overcome their bureaucratic cultures and contribute to a shared national security project. You know, you, you need conveners like Dave that have strategic empathy, that have worked in these different entities and know what drives them, and who are laser-focused on supporting the mission of the government in service of the American taxpayer. And so what I hope you get from the discussion was how someone who is dealing with all of these different inputs and drivers, right, the, the appropriations process, the authorizations process, and navigating, as I said previously, the bureaucratic cultures of all these different entities, right, how someone takes all of those inputs and successfully produces the output of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. national security. I'm a firm believer that the interagency process is becoming even more important, given the challenges and the adversaries that the United States faces, and given the fact that many of our adversaries' activities against the United States are falling in between the seams of jurisdiction between federal government agencies. And so this conversation with Dave is incredibly timely to kind of pull back the curtain on how the interagency process works uh, at the United States federal government level. So enjoy. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the Georgetown Precision Guided Podcast. It is fantastic to have you. It's a real pleasure to be here, Gareth. I'm really excited. And, and knowing you as I do, Dave, I know our listeners are in for a treat. So I will have already introduced your extensive career in national security uh, just before this conversation. And thankfully, we're going to have an opportunity to dive deeper into your background, into your thoughts on the value of public service and into your advice for aspiring national security practitioners in part two of the episodes. You're, you're, you've been very generous with your time. But just kind of diving right into the substance, one of the through lines from your career that our listeners will pick up on is that you have been a leader for quite some time in the interagency process. Through your current position, leading a non-proliferation interagency task force at the State Department, 
and as a director level at the NSC, you have extensive experience working at the federal interagency level, which is something that I want to spend some time kind of exploring with you on this episode. Great. Great. So it's my sense, Dave, and you can correct me if this is not true, but it's my sense that the complexity and the context sensitivity of some of our modern U.S. national security challenges demand a greater interagency process to address them. And this is especially true when adversarial actions kind of fall in between the seams of some of the jurisdictions of the federal agencies, which I think we're seeing more and more. And yet some of the biggest criticisms of the implementation of U.S. foreign policy over the last 20 years is that they represent failures of the interagency process. So from your perspective, what does it mean for the interagency process to work well in kind of international affairs and national security? And how do you define success in, in your current role? When I think about the interagency working well, I think about departments and agencies coming together to assess a problem or a challenge or an opportunity to bring to the conversation various potential resources that can be applied to a set of problems or a opportunity and to propose options to decision makers so that decision makers can then choose a path that's informed that includes some conversation about the resources necessary to implement that uh, that solution or path, uh, and that eventually uh, will include a thorough discussion of and plan for implementation through the mid to long term, meaning most of these kinds of challenges or opportunities uh, at that level aren't simply near-term things, near-term fixes, quick fixes. There's there are few quick wins. Um, uh, but what, what there are are opportunities to do things over time and to commit effort and, and, and resources over time uh, to improve a situation or mitigate some risk. When the interagency is at its best, it's identifying those things hopefully far enough out into the future that you can put in place the plans and the resources and the coordination necessary to fully mitigate a risk or take advantage of an opportunity, et cetera. It's also useful in the near term because in response to crisis, you don't know where you're going to get the thing that you need to solve the problem. And so by bringing together the interagency on a, and, uh, on a particular issue in crisis, yeah. you're also looking in the near term at how to find the right piece at the right time. That's fascinating. Thank you for that. With that answer, you know, you've talked to the need for planning for success, particularly when there's when there's a crisis that you can't anticipate, right? How can the federal government, in your perspective, better incentivize a culture of jointness or of, of interagency, right? Because, I mean, I think what you do is you cultivate among the different entities that are on your task force now, you cultivate that culture of jointness or, or kind of, you know, interagency. And yet, as those of us that have served in federal agencies know, each agency has a very distinct culture, even to the acronyms that it uses mm -hmm. to discuss shared problems, right? So how do you build a culture of interagency, particularly when you are an employee of a lead agency that is responsible for an interagency process? Great question. Uh, and and I, not only because, you know, I, I think you are putting your finger on something important, but because um, in the last 20 years or so, We've been asking ourselves that question routinely and repeatedly. And honestly, each administration that has come in um, has sought to do something about that particular set of challenges. And you could, you could look back at uh, the history of various OPM 
uh, Office of Personnel Management, pardon me, initiatives to uh, address that with personnel policy and staffing policy to, you know, the various uh, initiatives on the Hill yeah. to provide resources and reconfigure resources in different ways that would allow more flexibility or cooperation between departments and agencies. You can see some of that occasionally in the NDAA, the National yeah. Defense Authorization Act, uh, which funds DOD, but also generally funds a range of national security activities that aren't strictly about DOD uh, and will provide guidance or direction on how to other departments and agencies should use resources or prioritize things. Interesting. And those funds will be set up in a way sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in limited cases, unfortunately, uh, where they can be used in a flexible way uh, across diff- different departments and agencies or be- you know between them. Frankly, that probably could happen more often if there was uh, uh, an established mechanism for doing so and for using the resources that way. Generally, what's done right now when it comes to resources in that space that you're asking about is that you'll have like a dual key system where the, the funds will be provided to one department, but another department will have to agree to the use of those funds, right. right? And that's to make sure things are coordinated in advance before those those funds would be executed. I'm, I'm talking a lot about resources yes, right. because I think that will either help or hinder your idea of trying to get at more jointness and interagency cooperation, yeah. that uh, the more funds remain stovepiped, yeah. uh, the harder it is for departments and agencies to collaborate with each other yeah. on the implementation of efforts. I really appreciate that answer. And obviously, you know, this is DC and so resources are king. And I'm really glad you brought up the NDAA and some of the defense appropriation work. Uh, you know, obviously, DOD is kind of the, the elephant in the room or choose your large animal in the room. Are interagency failures when they occur, and obviously not on the task force that you lead, do you think that's a product of inadequate resourcing outside of DOD? Because obviously DOD comes to the table with significant resources. Do you think that in your discussion of the positioning of resources, uh, other agencies can play an, an outsized role in ensuring that that interagency process happens outside of what DOD brings to bear? Different departments and agencies have different resources and missions mm-hmm. and organizational cultures right. and so forth because they're each tasked to do a different thing. Right. If departments and agencies are to be tasked together to do something, yeah. right? the tasking or plan has to include how these departments and agencies will collaborate right. and how they will bring their various resources together to solve a problem or seize an opportunity. The fact that the former happens often, but the latter happens sometimes less clearly, again, depending on uh, whether it's crisis mode and you you really don't have enough time to do that. Hey, we will figure that out later. Let's just put the plan in place and start doing what we can do, that sort of thing, versus let's plan out a five-year implementation plan for a particular initiative that we want to take. That obviously comes with a slightly different approach on resources. I think... The three things that we have to think about in uh, addressing this challenge of jointness or cooperation are A, resources, um, B, sort of responsibility. So the, the clarity on who is doing what, how these things fit together, 
who is supporting whom right. on what part of a plan might happen this year versus next year. Right. And then the third thing is, it, I, I mentioned it earlier regarding OPM and personnel yeah. policy, right? Yeah. Is is this idea of rotations or of personnel movement or uh, the ability to detail somebody over there for six months on a project or right. three months over here? Or maybe we aren't rotating or going on detail, but we will understand that a piece of our responsibility on a daily basis or weekly basis is to interact in goodwill with that office over there, you know, in that other building, yeah. whatever, wherever it is, because our success is, is tied to their success. Right. So resources, responsibility, and rotations, yeah. uh, or, or some sort of personnel flexibility. Uh, and really, I guess that's the third time I've used that word, I think. Flexibility yeah. uh, really comes down to uh, flexibility and uh, having an an adaptive mindset that says, hey, now we've got this situation. How do we apply the resources we have? How do we adjust our approach? Yeah, I like that. And I think, I mean, knowing you, I know we'll trademark many things in this discussion, but I like that. The three R's, we'll have to use that. Um, that's very interesting. And I, I think what the sense that I'm getting from you is that your role as kind of the director of an interagency process is really as a translator between the different missions and the goals, both of kind of the body that you lead, but also where each agency contributes individually to that body. What does an average day look like for someone tasked with coordinating that process? Right. So I should say, first off, that I'm an employee of the Department of State yes. and uh, in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. And I have a great State Department boss, mm -hmm. and I am a State Department employee, yes. right? I say that because everybody has to have a home. Everybody has to have a, a place where they are supported, they're resourced, uh, they're provided guidance and encouragement, uh, et cetera. Uh, and I would say that I am very lucky to be in a mm -hmm. place where I get that in spades. Part of that mission, then, is to synchronize to be a catalyst for, to seek collaboration across the interagency, meaning to get departments and agencies with relevant interests, with relevant missions, with relevant resources, uh, who all care about this issue, in my particular case, the issue of mitigating the risk to civil and military aviation from advanced conventional weapons. Right. Uh, but whatever the interagency task is, whatever the team is, bringing them together and saying, where do we overlap? How do we complement each other, et cetera? In our case, there's a national strategy for aviation security that was published in 2006. There are various implementation plans that come from that strategy. And so this is a well-framed, highly organized and structured thing. Yeah. And it says in there, there will be a task force that will do these things. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So now we have uh, a little plan right. that says that we will do these things and everybody agrees. And part of it also involves that DOD sends two humans over to state mm -hmm. to be part of the task force. And that DHS uh, at, at one time sent humans over. Now we just collaborate very closely from, from they from their headquarters. Right. Um, and it's it's a very collaborative effort because luckily, A, we have this document that says we will do it, but also B, our track record has shown the benefits of collaboration across department and agency gaps, right? 
we're, we're working together to close those gaps, yeah. to communicate across what might be a bureaucratic chasm and is just now, you know, we've, we've shrunk it down to a little crack kind of thing. So it's a, it's, it's a constant effort yeah. by people to work with other people, right. and it's not just offices and institutions. Right, right. And that's a brilliant State Department answer, people to people. <laughs> I love that. That's, uh, that's well placed. And I know we'll have a chance in part two to speak more about kind of your thoughts on public service, which is great. I mean, it seems to me like the impact that you have because of the interagency is potentially longer lasting, but also greater because you're taking the some parts of each of these entities that are contributing to your effort. And so that's very interesting to me. Yeah, it's a multi, it's a multi-level, multi-dimensional problem set exactly. all the time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so kind of turning to some more of the of the practical work that you've had throughout your experience, both at State but also NSC and some of your work uh, with the Department of Defense, I was really interested in your work with U.S. allies and partners. And, you know, particularly in a, in a time where the pandemic may have limited our ability to go out and, and touch those people, right, mm-hmm. to be with them on that people-to-people basis. So what is it like? coordinating the implementation of foreign policy with allies and partners at this time right now, right? What is it about kind of the the last couple of years that has changed how we work with our allies and partners in the field? First off, we have to recognize how our relationships with certain allies and certain partners and just in general our approach to engaging allies and partners is also dynamic, has evolved over time, isn't the same as it was during the Cold War, isn't it the same as it was in the 90s, certainly has evolved in dramatic ways since 9-11. And so the pandemic isn't the first time our relationships with allies and partners have been have encountered a, a, a seismic shift, right? And so we have to, again, maintain some mental flexibility to, to adapt and adjust to those external sort of inputs. There was a time, certainly, when people just, we, nobody was traveling, right? right? right. We weren't coming into the office and, tra- and we're adjusting to working from home. So were they. Right. So now suddenly they're on different systems, just like we're on different systems at home, but we're on completely different systems in some cases, right? right. We are now in a place where we're traveling again. Yeah. Uh, we're meeting in person. We're going to conferences. We're negotiating in a conference room rather than via Zoom. Right. And so there, the, the return of that dynamic process, the return of the personal connections that you make with with government officials from, yeah. from allied governments, uh, that really adds value. It's essential. It's, yeah. it is, it's just not something you do via an exchange of letters, right? right? Like, like it, you know, that's not making progress, right? You're making progress when you are working things out together, right? And th- that happens in conversations and, and it happens finding, finding the little flexibilities that bring you and your and your colleagues together to, yeah. to solve a problem. Yeah. We are now traveling at almost the same rate that we were, I, I would say, okay. before, which is which is really fun and exciting yeah. and we right. feel like we're getting to do stuff. But it's also nice to use the flexibilities and the 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 the, the comfort that people have developed with technology right. Right. to not have to travel all the time for like a little thing that right. maybe maybe we can actually do this one via you know Zoom or whatever right. that that allows us to do a lot more so it's opened up a range of activities and engagements that might not have 
been open before because we're not going to fly all the way over there for that kind of thing. Uh, And now we are. Yeah. And so it's that forced flexibility that we spoke to before. I mean, we keep coming back to that. um, And that's a good tagline for the State Department is that flexibility, right? What does success look like in your experience working with ally and partner countries? I mean, I think that we've seen kind of the American recognition of the value of the constellation of allies and partners really blossom since the pandemic. And I know the administration in their, you know, national security documents, foreign policy documents have really highlighted that constellation as being kind of a key underpinning for U.S. national security. As someone in many of your jobs who has been tasked with maintaining those connections, what does success look like in that space? I think that the most important thing we have to remember is that strategy, competition, global relationships, national interests are all open-ended endeavors. That the context for what we do isn't, like I said, a quick win or isn't a finite end state for the most part. It is that we continue to pursue our interests in a constantly shifting and evolving world, right? In in a fluid strategic environment and that we have the flexibility and the, the position and the resources to achieve those interests, even if it's happening in an environment of competition and, and even if, it's in having an environment of zero sum, right? right? We love the win-win yeah. and the win-wins are good and win-wins help us help others and if, right, everybody gets it. Sure. Um, that isn't the case in every circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we, we have to be able to pursue those interests mm-hmm. in an open-ended way because that's the reality of international relations, of national security, of right. uh, engaging with allies of winning over partners, of finding common ground, of identifying interests that are complementary and then working together with those allies and partners to achieve a win-win for us. Very interesting. And what most surprised you about that work? I mean, what what was something that you were not expecting when you started to engage with allies and partners in that space to that end? It's re- this is going to sound so naive and silly. Uh, it's I mean like, be, I mean it's because it's an interesting question. Like, yeah. hey, what what caught you off guard? Right. Well, well, probably the 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 thing that now looking back, you know, is was was is obvious. Yeah. But at the time, it's like, oh, that's that's true. Uh, it's that you study national interests and you study how different governments work, and then you go out and you do it, and you see the consequences of our interests and their interests not being the same or being generally aligned but not exactly complementary mm-hmm. or that ooh, they're working on a different timeline than we are yeah. and that then constrains our timeline or it puts us in a situation where we have to pursue our own timeline yeah. because of our own interests and our own goals right. which means that we have to sort of detach ourselves from working with this particular partner despite the fact that we really want to yeah. oh no wait we need them we can't have success without them right. well then we've got to compromise yeah. and we've got to look at our own timeline or our own approach and think through how what adjustments we can make so that sounds obvious right it's difficult in reality yeah. because n- none of these countries 
exist in isolation from each other, yeah. right? So it's, it's always, like I said, this strategically fluid environment where, where your engagement with, with one partner or ally or whatever may have positive or negative consequences or, or neutral consequences, meaning there are consequences, they're just not necessarily negative or positive, with another. And so you've got to be thinking about that. It's something you study and you read and you think, oh, that makes sense. I'll write a paper about how this would work. It's entirely different when it's all happening at the same time and your boss needs notes on that meeting. The travel is coming up next week and et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of the need to have a deliberative and kind of long-term process versus the tyranny of the calendar. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. What is the same about working now at the interagency level and working with allies and partners? I mean, are there kind of transferable skills that you deploy between both of those spaces? It's, It's very important to remember as somebody who's in a large institution that's part of an even larger institution, right? Right. The State Department, the U.S. government, whatever, right? It's very important to remember that we aren't in this alone. That doesn't mean, hey, our interests are the most important, and if you're going to be a good ally or partner, you need to get on board with what we're doing and follow us. No, it means how do we partner, literally work with, work together with, uh, this or that state or government uh, in a constructive and collaborative way to take advantage of each other's particular you know, skill sets or resources yeah. or, or sort of positional advantage, yeah. right? In a way that isn't taking advantage of that state right. or that we, you know, we feel like they might be taking advantage of us. Right. No, instead, it's how can we do this as a collaboration? Again, it seems obvious, highly taxing because... There's somebody like me sitting in the capital of each of those states thinking the same thing about us and those guys and those yeah. guys. Yeah. And so it's it's this multinodal, fluid yeah. environment. Yeah. They're probably filming their own podcast right exactly. now being like, Dave from America. <laughs> That's fascinating. And so, you, I mean, you're really speaking to strategic empathy. Yeah, like absolutely. I, I mean, I think that a lot of what we study here at Georgetown is, you know, how do you calculate national interest, right? How do you advance mm-hmm. U.S. national interest? And yet you're describing a process where you walk around to the other side of the table and you say, what's kind of motivating them to work with us? And that's something that's very important, I think, to remember. So I really appreciate you bringing that to bear. So you spoke to kind of the need to take advantage of the resources that each partner brings to bear. What do you think is the U.S.'s greatest strength when it comes to engaging with allies and partners? That's easy. Uh, that's um, great to hear. The, the greatest strength of the United States in working with allies is clearly what we as a people mm. represent mm. in values, in our historical faith and democracy, mm. in uh, f- uh, individual freedom, uh, all the things that, that, that sort of make America great, <laughs> right? The truth is yeah. those things do still represent something, mm. not just at home, but abroad. I, I really believe that. Yeah. And the more we are united in that common faith, the more we walk that talk, the more meaningful yeah. is our partnership with other states and governments. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly well said. And it seems to me, and I'll be interested in your experience uh, in this regard, it seems to me like often allies and partners serve a role of reminding us of that obligation, of that responsibility. You know, the U.S., if you study uh, history as you have or, or you've, you know, you've lived history, 
we can sometimes forget that charge and that history, or we forget how unique in the world those traditions and those priorities are. Is it your experience that sometimes, you know, allies and partners play that important role of kind of reminding us of our own role? Both, both um, explicitly mm. and, and implicitly. In other words, I have had in both formal and informal conversations with, with uh, representatives from other governments, I've had them say, you know, Dave, we understand your position. We understand the American position. Yeah. We respect that position. Sure. And we also know that you have a long history of respecting ours. And that's, you know, that gives one pause. Yeah. Like, mm, I better make sure that I am doing and saying things in such a way right. that actually does right, right. respect your position. Interesting. And that's, those are those people-to-people connections that you spoke to. That's fascinating. So I, I want to do something a little different now, Dave, after we've kind of had this great discussion of the interagency and also some tenets of diplomacy. So you served for a year as a director for African Affairs at the National Security Council, where you worked on kind of counterterrorism and and a great power competition in the Sahel region. I think a lot of students obviously know about the National Security Council, and they have kind of images of how it works and what it does in their mind or from some of the stuff that they're studying. I'm really interested in kind of drilling down from you what exactly kind of a day looks like when NSC is kind of reacting to events and then trying to coordinate across the interagency a government response. So let's take a hypothetical situation. You know, let's say that there's some of pop-up event like a, a coup maybe in the region that you were working in, right? And, and I think that's a that's a good case study because it, it kind of pops up, right? It, it, it happens. Right. You became aware of the information. Walk us through the, the kind of the short and the medium term actions as a director at the National Security Council when something of a crisis kind of pops up and shows itself. What does that look like? So one has to first understand that that happens in the in the context of all the other things going on at the NSC, right? So you don't, you know, it's not like in the movies where, you know, uh, you know, you're in bed and the phone rings right. and it's like, there's been a coup and blankety blank. And you're like, okay, I'll be right there. And then you drive in and then like everything else falls away and there's never another thing, right? Like in the movies, there's never like, right. oh, hey, where's that memo? Right. Like, I don't have time for that memo. Right. Like that just doesn't happen. But in reality, right, like you're doing these other things, yeah. right? You're, you're, you're developing a long-term regional strategy, like a five-year strategy. And you're preparing for a principal to travel to the region to go on a two or three country trip to, to hit several capitals to discuss certain things. Yeah. And, you know, there may be um, an interagency meeting at the assistant secretary level next week. So you're preparing the, the read ahead materials and the agenda, and you're coordinating with different department and agency officials right. on what each department is going to bring to the table for this meeting. Right. So there's a lot of pre-meeting coordination, hours of it. And then in the middle of that, <laughs> right? In the middle of your 12, 13-hour day, right. right? There's a coup, right? right? And there's a thing. There's a, a, what did we have? Had several coups, okay. had a, an epidemic outbreak, had a volcanic eruption. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so you can maybe see some of these things happening, yeah. right? You might be getting some, some reports about certain developments and, and certain signals that, you know, certain leaders are, are giving off. So you might or you might not. Right. So first, the context, I think, is important and and very relevant Uh, because now you've got to stop all those things for maybe 20 minutes, maybe two days, 
maybe a week, right? Depending on what those things are and if yeah. they can be stopped or not. Yeah. And attend to this crisis, whatever it is. In the case that, that you present of a coup, let's say there's a coup in, in my region, the first thing I'm going to do is reach out to the intelligence community to see what information they have because you want to get the freshest information, right? We're going to reach out to the U.S. Embassy in that capital to find out what's going on. Might reach out to DOD's combatant command, regional combatant command for the region to find out what they might be seeing through their channels. You'd consult with State Department and the Office of the Secretary of Defense on their, you know, how they're seeing this develop, what they think might be the causes, or especially if it's a bit of a surprise, who might be in charge, what the situation is on the ground, is it violent? You'll probably put a lot of that information together into a very short synopsis that you will present to a senior principal, letting them know this is the situation, this is what we you know see happening and what we expect to maybe happen in the near term and uh, and then some sort of steps that you may take or be taking or are prepared to take if a particular uh, milestone is reached or a, right. a indicator pops right the term that we use is the what the so what and the now what the what is this is happening the so what is this is this is the the consequence or the importance of it right it's not just that it's just not just a little like one sentence factual data update that's right. the what right. it's the implications is the so what right. and then the now what right so this is what we're going to do about it or what we're prepared to do about it if we find out that x is happening or y depending on the country depending on the region we might also talk to neighboring countries so everything i just described we might also talk to the u.s embassy in the neighboring countries right depending on the situation right is it something that's happening along a border we might also talk to other allies that might have a historical relationship with that country right so if it's in francophone africa we might go talk to to paris the key is that there's a lot of nodes in the network right and Everybody above you wants to get as much information as uh, as could be available instantly, yeah, right. right? And so you have to be careful not to give them so much information that it, there's no so what. Like yeah. the so what becomes impossible to de- to determine because there's so much what. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so so filtering out the noise, getting to the nuggets, yeah. right? That's the what, and then understanding what are the implications for U.S. interests, for U.S. citizens in the region or anything like that. That's the immediate response. Okay. After that, you're probably going to, depending on how the situation develops, again, I mean, every situation is different, right. but assuming that this is going to uh, develop into some sort of short-term instability, mm-hmm. right, that could lead to violence or short-term instability that could be internally stabilized by the actors, you will probably have what we call a small group. And a small group is a short meeting of just the key offices that I've described, that I've listed, to essentially look at the so what and now what, right? So now that we've identified some options, how is the situation developing? What options do we have? What options do we not want to have, right, right. right? et cetera? It might involve like a sub-regional multilateral organization okay. that might deploy a special envoy or some sort of special representative from neighboring states. Right. So there are 
lots of things that don't necessarily involve a bunch of Americans getting on a plane and flying over there to fix it. And I think that's that's important because, again, you've, yes. you've got to think about all the different elements that are available. And you also don't control all those elements, yeah, right. right? So those states might already be planning to do that, mm. right? And so... Okay, well, is that helpful? Is that not helpful? Who right. are they sending? Right. Why are they sending that person? Is it because the the relationship between that special envoy and the people who are now taking charge via coup? Right. Okay, so let's think about that. What kind of message do we want to have? So we have to talk to the press folks and strategic communications folks. So there's there's all these steps that you have to think through. After a small group, again, depending on how things are developing, maybe in the next few days you have what's called a sub-IPC. Okay. A sub-IPC, as the name suggests, is below an IPC. Okay. So an IPC is an interagency policy committee. Okay. It is simply an assistant secretary level meeting of interagency actors, okay. right, departments and agencies, right. to talk about a particular issue, identify some options, either approve action or refer it higher. A sub-IPC is kind of a deputy assistant secretary level meeting. As a director, I would be chairing a sub-IPC. And as uh, and my boss, the senior director, would chair the IPCs. So odds are that, you know, after a day or two, we might, after the small group, after things have developed, we've got more information. We've talked to all the relevant actors in the region and out. We would then have a sub-IPC and sort of lay out with more clarity and forethought some sort of recommendations that we would then refer up to an IPC and then potentially above that. Yeah. As the other crises du jour are happening. As you're preparing for the yeah. principal's travel to the region, right. and now you've got to change all that paper right. Right. because now there's a coup. Right. So you've got to add to that, right? right? And maybe suddenly he's like, oh, you know what? Uh, we're not going to that fourth country, we're going to this one instead. Wow. Well, the situation changes on, on the fly. Yeah. And, then, and then maybe you postpone that other IPC that right. you had scheduled uh, for, you know, for Friday. That's going to slide a week maybe because, <laughs> you know, I got to go home and sleep at some point. And it seems to me like you can't develop those relationships in the crisis. Oh, no. So, I mean, you, you know, you can't prepare for these things to happen. So, like, what's your strategy for relationship building so that, you know, right of boom, you have those relationships in place to then do that job with the allies, with the partners, with the countries, with the strategic communicators. Like, how do you navigate building those relationships? In an ideal world, okay. upon a, uh, being selected for any of these kinds of positions, yes. whether it's a director at the NSC or you're going to be on an interagency task force right. or you're going to be in some other sort of interagency assignment where you need to live in this sort of multifaceted space, right. you are going to sort of map out the people that are players in that space. You're going to talk to the person who's there now right. that you might be replacing the incumbent and say, okay, before day one, who right. do I need to you know, talk to? Right. Who do I need to know? And in an ideal world, you'll have the time to go engage with the right two or three people at OSD, the right two or three people at the joint staff, right. et cetera, the, the regional bureau at state, a couple of functional bureaus with a lot of interest and investment in that right. particular you know, portfolio. Right. That can take weeks. Yeah. Uh, ideally, it should. And you're also doing whatever job you're doing before you go to this right, job. Right, right. Uh, so at the very least, you are familiar with the people and their interests right. before you step in. Right. In an even better world, you are one of those people. 
And so when you're moving from a sort of department-specific view to an interagency view, whether just an interagency role in one of these departments right. or at the NSC, right. you already have familiarity with the issues and the people because you've been participating in those meetings and small groups and so forth. And that might be why you were selected. Yeah. So hopefully that's in the worst case scenario, none of that exists. Okay. You were plucked from some place to go into this place. Right. And because of sort of bureaucratic hurdles and other things, you didn't have time to make those sort of pre-assignment right. relationships right. Uh, launch them. Right. And so now you're there. And it's like, before you have that first meeting, before you chair that first process, you need to go out and do that. But now time is compressed. Meetings go from a 45-minute exploration to a 25-minute get to know you. And so one's ability to figure out what the nuggets are that you need to get and get them, whether it's a 25-minute get to know you or a a sort of leisurely hour discussion, will determine how well you can start that job. Interesting. What is the most important skill for crisis decision making? To stop and think. Yeah, that's profound. I mean, that is, you know, that is, that is profound. When when I was flying, we would always say that the first thing that you should do yeah. in an emergency in the cockpit is to wind your watch. Not, not literally, obviously, course, yeah, right. but but because the first thing you want to do is stop, yeah. think about what's going on, and then react to it. Right. Make sure that you are reacting to the right problem. Yeah. Take a look at what's going on in your cockpit. Yeah. What are the indicators? Because if you respond quickly to the wrong problem, yep. you'll make the problem at hand worse. Right. So stop and think. Finally, Dave, what, what surprised you the most about working at the National Security Council? I mean, you, know, you, you spoke to what surprised you about the ally and partner work, right? Which you, know, you said kind of seemed obvious but wasn't at the time. Is there a kind of a similar lesson from NSC that you really remember? Wow, I thought A and it was B. The first thing that popped in my head as you started asking that question, okay. and so I'll, I will answer with it because it was the v- instinct, yes. was the people. Huh. The quality hmm. of the people around you, their knowledge, their expertise, their commitment and dedication, their sense of hard work and, and just relentlessness, yeah. their sense of camaraderie, their, sh- their sense of shared experience, the almost universal desire for win-win across the organization. The people really make that experience special. I'll, I'll tell you this one little personal story. When I was 17, I was in a high school history class about America's experience in the Vietnam War. And there was a segment of the course that covered the role of the National Security Council in advising Mm. Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, and how the role of the NSC evolved based on the, the individual president, their relationship with the NSC, the profile of the war in the lives of the American people, et cetera. And I remember sitting there and being 17 and saying, that is so cool. I want to work at that place, right? And I was really turned on by the idea that people could be taken from departments and agencies across the government, put in this little beehive, and uh, asked to make assessments 
and recommendations that would determine how the executive branch deals with the world. How cool is that? So I had in my mind that that's what this organization did. And that's what they do. And that's what I found. But that wasn't the coolest part. The coolest part is the people where they're doing it with you. That's really something. Well said. And that's a really great way to kind of segue into part two of the episode, which will focus more on those individual public servants. Well, this has been a really illuminating discussion, Dave. I, I think learning more about what makes the interagency process work, learning what working with allies and partners looks like in practice, and I think kind of exploring how NSC kind of navigates its charge of, as you said, kind of charting the executive course for the world. And this has been a really illuminating discussion for students that are kind of hearing about these things in a formal practice, but obviously that can differ from the way that they actually exist. So I really appreciate your time and your expertise, and I hope folks will stay tuned for uh, for part two of our episode. It's a pleasure, Gareth. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org. Now, as a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the United States government, Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other entity. Hope to have you join us for part two of this episode with Dave Diaz, where we get into more of his thoughts on starting or maximizing a career in national security and public service.